0: Welcome to the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rita Jablonski. I'm a nurse practitioner and researcher with almost 35 years of experience working with people who have dementia and their family and formal caregivers. I explain why behaviors happen, what the behaviors mean, and how to best handle them. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and it's no substitute for medical advice or care. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 30 of the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast. I am so pleased to welcome an amazing colleague, Lindsay Robbins, who is a nurse practitioner who specializes in memory problems and who is really knowledgeable about the topic of shadowing. Lindsay, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be a part of the podcast.
0: Yay. And it's episode 30. So we are, we just celebrated our sixth month birthday on the 14th because my first recording was July 14th. Okay, awesome. I'm happy to be here for the anniversary. (laughs) Yeah, you can always tell when it's a new podcast, because we celebrate every milestone, (laughs) every episode, everything. Okay, please describe what shadowing is and what people, what other terms people, like Like when I interviewed Daphne last week, she talked about glue, that they talk about the care recipient sticking like glue to the caregiver.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. I think some of the comments that you are going to hear most from caregivers that are dealing with shadowing behaviors, just some of the ones that I've heard personally are, I can't even go to the bathroom by myself. Every time I go to the bathroom, they're right there. If I walk out of the room, they're pacing around the room looking for me. Just a lot of anxiety. Um, An example that I usually give is if you've ever had a kid and you can't go to the bathroom by yourself, you can't leave their site without them looking for you. It's very similar and it can be really stressful for caregivers because they feel like they can't get a moment to themselves and they also don't know how to calm the anxiety of that person with dementia so it can be a really stressful topic.
0: So in your knowledgeable perspective is shadowing an anxiety issue what do you think causes it in people living with dementia? So, there's really a number of things that I've
1: seen um, in my research that, you know, kind of point to it. A lot of it, obviously, is anatomical. As the brain shrinks, the neurons and things like that control the mood and familiarity and things like that do, you know, they do shrink. And there's the anatomical basis behind it. But there is a very large anxiety standpoint to it as well. In general, human beings just innately tend to be more fearful in situations. So, being alone in the dark, being with strangers, experiencing the rapid approach of someone, hearing loud noises, that there's just this innate fear of unwilling separation from one's attachment figure at any stage in life. And so there's this instinctive response based on awareness of increased danger and the risk to survival. Even when a patient with dementia has this memory issue, they still have that instinctive response. And whether it be a spouse or an adult child, a caregiver, when they don't, when they lose sight of that caregiver, they're anxious, they're nervous, they're scared because they don't feel, they don't have the compensation mechanisms to be able to protect themselves like they used to. So there's really a lot of components to it.
0: Wow, it it does sound really complicated. From what you were describing, it almost sounds to me like the brain realizes it's degrading, if you will. It realizes it's not operating to its full potential. So more protective aspects Come in. I guess our old right. friend, the amygdala, just doesn't give up.
1: That's exactly what it is. And I have a lot of patients with um, what's you know primary progressive aphasia that their language centers have really declined and they're not able to express themselves. And their caregivers will often tell me, it's he knows something is wrong but he can't express it. And you can see that he knows something is wrong in his anxiety response, whether it be restlessness or rubbing the fingers, rubbing the legs. I had one patient that would become so anxious when he couldn't express himself or when his wife would um, walk out of the room that he would rub his pants so hard that he would actually rub holes in his pants. And so there is obviously a very strong anxiety component to it.
0: What would you say to a caregiver who is experiencing this shadowing behavior? Because it's always good to know why it's happening. But I've had caregivers say, awesome, you just told me why, what do I do about it?
1: The first thing I would tell them is to breathe, to relax. Because one thing that I've seen in my experience is that Patients with dementia are very responsive and sensitive to the tone and the behavior of their loved one. So if you are anxious and frustrated, that's going to feed off onto the patient that has dementia. They are going to censure response and become more anxious themselves. But the most important technique that I would teach them is distraction. I watched a video recently in some of my research about a patient that was experiencing shadowing behavior And it was a patient, a female patient with dementia, and her husband was at the table trying to pay some bills. And the patient was just very confused. She felt like she needed to be doing something. She kept asking questions. She kept saying, when are you going to be done? How long is this going to take? And the first segment of the video showed what I would consider a non-beneficial response. The husband was very agitated, he was very frustrated, he was very short with the patient, and it it caused a lot of turmoil for the patient. She was very upset. And then later on in the video, it showed an example of a, a technique that was calming to the patient. So what this particular caregiver did was went and got a load of towels and sat them on the table. And while he worked on his bills, did things that he needed to do, the patient was folding towels. And that was something that was really soothing to her because she'd been a homemaker her whole life. So that was something she was familiar with. It wasn't a very complex task, but it was something that was soothing to her. And he was actually able to finish his work and you could just see the calming response of the person with dementia. She wasn't anxious. She felt like she was being useful. So I would encourage any caregiver that's uh, dealing with shadowing behaviors to look into distraction techniques. Like I said, it doesn't need to be anything complex. You don't wanna tell them to go cook a five course meal or anything like that. (laughs) That might be a little bit uh, too much but just something that they used to enjoy some towels to fold some dishes to wash in the sink something to keep their mind off of the anxiety response so that you can take time to yourself and do things that you need to do because as a caregiver with a a patient with dementia or a child or anyone your tasks and your duties don't stop just because you're a caregiver there's still things that you have to get done and unfortunately some people out there don't have the resources to pay for in-home sitters or they don't have the family support system to bring someone in. So you do sometimes have to find ways to get things done with the loved one with dementia there. Just looking into distraction or a TV program they enjoy, something like that can be a really helpful technique.
0: Yeah, you bring up a really good point about the in-home caregivers because I have families who have the resources at or Figure out a way to get in-home caregivers, and just because you have somebody on the schedule doesn't mean they show up. Right, they get sick, their child, or someone in their home is exposed to COVID, so they aren't. They they can't come to your house. Or today in Alabama, we had well, it's not too bad here, but we have places in Alabama, and a little bit of snow in Alabama goes a long way. <laughs> right, shuts down,
1: shuts everything down, everything down. right.
0: Yeah. So you, you bring up some really awesome points. And I like to go back to the distraction. It, it is imperative. And I say this to my listeners all the time, find activities that are meaningful to the person living with dementia. And you stated that so eloquently. Mm -hmm. I had a caregiver who was caring for her father, who was a retired attorney and they were at their wits end what to give to her father to keep him busy because he was the consummate workaholic, to use the daughter's terminology. He always worked. He didn't seem to have had hobbies or interests outside of his profession. Right. And I don't know where I got this sudden insight, but I said to her, why don't you take stuff that you've printed off the printer that you're going to recycle or it's trash Mm -hmm. and hand him printed papers with a highlighter. And she did. And her father would sit there and go through documents and just highlight. It was as if he was superimposing a deposition or he was superimposing a memory from the past because she even said to me, some of the things I've printed out are recipes or... I wanted to print an order form and it botched up. So she would go around and collect newspaper or just collect magazines and tear out the pages and and put them together in it with a clip and stick it on a legal pad. And that would keep her father busy for at least 30 minutes.
1: That's a really good idea. And I think it brings out an important point that it, it's important to realize that not every distraction method is going to work for every patient. It has to be something centered to something that they enjoyed prior to the dementia. So whether that be working or laundry, dishes, sorting something, just something that they enjoy. Because for me, if you handed me a bunch of papers related to the business world, I'm not really going to enjoy it. But if you hand me some laundry, that's something I'm used to doing. So I can, I could do that all day. So it needs to be something centered to the patient's interest.
0: And, And that's really good that you bring that out because I had a caregiving couple. It was the husband caring for the wife and I made some erroneous assumptions based on their age. I made some assumptions that she was a homemaker. So I kept telling him to give her household chores and mm-hmm. it actually made her worse. Right. She would lock herself in the bathroom. And then when, I, when a different family member brought her to the appointment and I was able to ask questions, I found out that he was 30 years military. So he was always deployed somewhere and the wife would take care of the family business. So she had a housekeeper to handle laundry, and she was the one in the home office with a adding machine and a bunch of invoices. Wow! So we, yeah, yeah it took uh, no, no joke about three different visits, and I couldn't understand why she was getting more and more agitated. And then I realized I was, the dodo head, because I didn't ask the right questions. I made assumptions. And I joke with my kids all the well, My kids actually joke with me and, and they've <laughs> determined, because I've said to them, it may not be a matter of if I experience dementia, I live long enough. It may be a matter of when. <laughs> and my son was the one who said, we'll get you in the nursing home. We'll tell you, there's a research study and we'll just lock the door behind you. <laughs> So my kids already have a plan and my my daughter said, yeah, we'll just give you an iPhone version eight or whatever we get from the Smithsonian or a clipboard and a pen and just have you walk around and collect data. So yes, my (laughs) kids already have a plan. Uh, It's always good to be prepared. (laughs) It really is. And, and I think that Brings us to the topic of the need to have honest conversation, family members, especially when you see people in the clinic of giving them a heads up, mm-hmm. this is what you can expect with shadowing and, and think about ways you can take hobbies or interests or f- previous responsibilities and modify it. Because I think with shadowing and, and you tell me, cause you're the expert here. As the dementia worsens, does shadowing worsen or does it peak and then decline?
1: So what I have found just in my experience is that any type of behavioral incident, whether it be agitation or frustration, hallucinations, shadowing, they all seem to really peak in the moderate stage. That's when the patient is still ambulatory. They're still able they're starting that struggle where they're having difficulty you know performing self-care activities of daily living and so that's when a lot of these compensation mechanisms start to i've seen that as patients progress into the severe stage where they're not ambulatory and they're not able to really perform any activities of daily living, that's when the shadowing behavior and things like that tend to subside. And so they are really strong in that moderate stage and it can cause a lot of frustration. And I've had patients tell me, we've tried this and we've tried that and nothing's really working. I had one patient tell, we tried to put him in a respite group and he just was so anxious and agitated at the the respite group that we ended up just having to come get him. He was trying to leave. He was trying to come find me. It wasn't even worth it to try to get the the respite. And so it can cause a lot of animosity between caregivers. It can also cause a lot of animosity amongst family members, because if you have one sibling that's really stepping up and helping out, they might start to become more frustrated with the other sibling that maybe is not there all the time. And just in my research and in my case studies and things like that, I found a quote that really resonated with me. And it really helped me. I use this a lot when talking to my caregivers because they're so frustrated. And it's important to remember that the person with dementia is not giving you a hard time. They're having a hard time. And so if you try to really just think of that in those situations, it lets you not become as frustrated because they're not doing this on purpose. They they can't help it. Is it frustrating for the caregiver? Absolutely. Do you feel like you can't get a second to yourself, but imagine being that person with the dementia that's going through this. And imagine not being familiar with the most familiar of environments, with their own home that you've lived in for 20, 30 years. Imagine it being an unfamiliar place for you. Imagine not knowing what you're supposed to be doing, what you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to be with, who the person that's with you even is. It's a very depressing thought. And just trying to keep your composure and trying to be empathetic to that can really help with the situation.
0: Yes, you bring up really excellent points, and I love your quote because I often hear family caregivers tell me, they we, we call it assigning intention, where the family caregiver will say, oh, he's just so nasty, or she does these awful things and it hurts my feelings, right. And I I really want to come back to your description of the familiar is no longer familiar. Mm-hmm. It's like I woke up and where did my house go? Where did my family go? Where did my dog go? And, and it's important to have that recognition. And I think it's also important what you said earlier, we call it caregiver vibes but watching as a caregiver, how you are feeling because people living with dementia have difficulty understanding words as the dementia progresses, especially people with the primary progressive aphasia, Mm -hmm. because as those temporal lobes start to go offline, their ability to make communication and make words. Becomes less and less, as does their ability to understand. And one of the things I, I try to explain to family caregivers it doesn't matter. All the dementias may start, originate with problems in different parts of the brain at first, but as they progress to that moderate and then to the severe stage, all areas of the brain become affected. Right. I use the example of an upside down triangle where the wide part of the triangle is in the beginning. So that helps us with diagnosis because when people come in earlier in the journey and they have specific features, it helps us to say it's X dementia or it's Y, and here comes the plan of care. But as the dementia progresses, everything starts to come down to that point where they need more and more care and all the behaviors Do show up.
1: And I've used a very similar example. I think of it as an Olympic race. Everybody starts out at their own different marker, but they all end up at the same finish line. And that's where you come in with the different types of dementia that so many people don't even realize exist. I think obviously Alzheimer's is the most familiar. But the dementia with Lewy body starts out with hallucinations, resting behavioral disturbances. Alzheimer's is more of an amnestic pattern of memory loss. Primary progressive aphasia is the language, but they all end up at the same place. They all end up in the moderate stage of dementia where they're requiring more care and then eventually the severe. So while it is an important diagnostic tool to know specifically which type they have, at the end of the day, they're all going to experience the same type of behaviors.
0: Yeah, and that's really important because I do have my own Facebook group. I also have, uh, I I also watch and belong to other Facebook groups of caregivers. And it really breaks my heart when I'm reading family members ask for help or they're trying. I I had one comment I saw where I'm laughing because it's your dog in the back. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. My podcast listeners. So I I have a great story. I have this software that I'm no longer using because it got a little funky, but I had the software I used in the very beginning of my podcast journey and the software would had artificial intelligence. And if something out of the ordinary, like a door slam or a dog bark would have would happen, the program would extract it from the audio. Oh, wow. And I thought I was, like hot stuff and I had Amira with me because right now as I'm podcasting she's curled up in the office and she's hanging out but if the UPS truck drives by or one of my neighbors decides to jog and for whatever reason she'll react and I had a situation where halfway through my podcast she presented me with a damn squeaky toy <laughs> um, Every yeah no joke every 15 seconds squeak squeak squeak, squeak. <laughs> And yes. I was getting upset because I didn't want squeakies in the background because I want the perfect podcast, which is a total joke. <laughs> there, there is no perfect podcast. And sometimes I think my listeners giggle when they hear something in the background because that makes it more real.
1: Right. That's and what I was going to say. We're, it lets them know that we're real people too. You know, that yeah, I, not yeah,
0: a- <laughs> I, don't have, I joke and I say I have a podcast studio. What a joke. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a front bedroom that I've converted into a home office and, I just say I have a studio because I can dream. <laughs> hey,
1: I'm sitting on my bed right now. My home office is a computer in the corner of my master bedroom. One of
0: my colleagues, her office, no joke, was the master bathroom. Yeah. She, I'm... <laughs> yeah, she, she had a bunch of kids and a spouse. And she would literally go to the bathroom and shut the door. And I think she had the computer on the the commode lid (laughs) was sitting on the side of the bathtub. So she always used the cool screens. And one day she just turned it off. And and I I thought her acoustics were good. I was was going to say the
1: acoustics have got to be really impressive.
0: They were very impressive. I was like, do you have your own studio? And she turned off the virtual background and I could see the shower. (laughs) And I just went, bless your heart. And she says, yep, it's the only place kids cannot find me because they have to go through the master bedroom door. And then go, to, there was like two levels of security there. That's impressive. Uh, so,
1: it makes you feel any better. Yeah. When we first started telemedicine, my um, office was a closet. I had a few patients that were like, is that a closet? <laughs> so, <laughs> you do what you have to do.
0: <laughs> yeah. And the important thing was we took care of our caregivers and our patients and we exactly. did it any way we could. And and it was funny with that. You talk about telemed. My family caregivers and my patients got to know all my animals because I would be sitting in front of my computer, totally professional. And I even turned my desk around. So I have the gray wall behind me versus the closet door that my (laughs) stupid cat would open. And I would be in the middle of a visit and Gandalf, who's my big gray, he would just walk across the computer, look at the camera. And that often broke the ice because I, I, I could tell that the people living with dementia would look at the camera and be fascinated. Oh, is that your cat? And then they're picking up their animals and then I'm shining the camera on my dog's face. <laughs> but, but getting back to the software, I always really thought the software was getting rid of the squeaky noises. And I announced it to my listeners. Oh, my dog is squeaking her toy, but I have this great software. And then my daughter came over for dinner because we have dinner every Friday. And she popped over after work and said, I listened to your podcast and I hate to tell you, mom, your software got rid of some of the squeakies, but <laughs> you can still hear them. And and you're like, yeah, I have this software and you can't hear the squeakies. And then she says, you pause and you hear squeak, squeak. <laughs> so she says, either you're delusional or you need a refund on your software. Seriously. Yeah, it was free software. I didn't pay for the enhanced version, but that was... Those are some of my great podcast stories. and 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 then to my fans in Florida listening, I always say, if you get stopped by a trooper by the name of Jablonski, that's my son. He's the only awesome. trooper. Yeah, he's the only trooper in Florida, a surname Jablonski. And I said, if he stops you, please tell him to call his mother once in a while. Right. So I'm waiting <laughs> for a two a m. phone call because he works the night shift. Oh, yeah, it'll happen. It'll happen. Yeah. I, I can't wait, but, it's <laughs> but I think uh, we're, I'm getting more and more listeners because in this podcast, we don't just talk about the behaviors. I listen to so many. I stopped listening to be honest with you, but I did check out other podcasts to get a sense of what are other people doing. And I have the blog and I have followed other people's blog and I'll be honest, they're boring as shit because <laughs> all they do is say, oh, this happens. And you and I both know, uh, we both work with a neurologist who I don't want to give a shout out to, cause I don't know if he would be comfortable, but we work with a really awesome, we work with several awesome neurologists, right. uh, the chair of our department. Who's also the lead physician in our clinic. He tells an amazing story that changed his career. And he, he had just started out as a behavioral neurologist and this family member would bring his mom every so many months to the clinic. And each time this physician would do all the cognitive testing and he'd look at the son and say, Oh, your mother's worse. Next visit. Yes. Your mother's worse. Next minute visit. Your mother's worse. And at the third visit, the son glared at the neurologist and said, yeah, no kidding. I know she's worse. I live with her. What the bleep do I do about it? Right. And that changed this physician's philosophy of care And that's why we are all in the clinic, because I think what distinguishes our clinic is we support caregivers with behavioral solutions as best as we can. And I notice a lot of other neurology practices simply say, here's the problem. Right. A lot of podcasts, a lot of blogs say, oh, this is the behavior. And as a caregiver, I'm thinking, no kidding. What do I do? And how do I deploy the strategy. And I
1: think that's where nurse practitioners come into play too, because while the, like you said, the physician we work with is absolutely amazing, but he will tell you all day, I haven't been at the bedside as a nurse caring for these behaviors. Nurse practitioners have. And I think that's where our expertise comes in. We were all bedside nurses before we became advanced practice providers and we learned what did work and what didn't work. And I think that's what we bring to the table.
0: And I'm the oldest person in the practice and I own it. I tell everybody I'm now a crone, so beware. We, I have a, several colleagues, we we're all in our, our mid to late fifties and we call it the FU fifties because we've stopped really caring as much about opinions and we really want to get things done and done well. And so I had lived experience of being a nursing assistant in the eighties mm-hmm. where training was basically, here you go, poof, out on the floor. And I can remember being in nursing school and being told, and, and you may just shake your head, but back in the 80s, we were told in our nursing classes, oh, if someone has a, a, a behavioral issue, if they have dementia, mm-hmm. you reorient them. And that's what we were told to do. And I remember being, we had a nursing home clinical, which in the 80s, that was unheard of. that was That was relatively new. So we were in this nursing home Philadelphia Geriatric Center that was also affiliated with a lot of your teaching universities, and it was a research hub. So they would there was all these PhDs running around doing research, and we were told all the time present reality. And like you said, being at the bedside at two o'clock in the morning, but I also worked as a nursing assistant. I remember a woman trying to get out of bed and telling me she had to go to work, and I'm standing there deploying the reality oh, it's 1986 and you are at St. Joseph's Manor and it's two o'clock in the morning. And, And our caregivers do this because they believe that's what they're supposed to do. Right. And I remember the woman got more and more aggravated and agitated and started yelling. And finally, another nursing assistant who wasn't in school, who had been doing this for 30 years, walked into the room, looked at me like I was a real tater tot. And then she entered the woman's reality. She said, Mary Beth, it's okay. I know you are worried about getting up to work. I will make sure I wake you up before the train comes. Right. Absolutely. And what was hilarious, and what was hilarious is our nursing home was literally a half a mile from a train station. Oh, And if we, when we woke up people at six o'clock in the morning for blood pressures or blood sugars or whatever we were doing, you could hear the train in the background. So she really wasn't lying. She said, I'll wake you up and in time for the, the train and I'll make sure you get breakfast, which on right. night shift, we gave out breakfast trays. Yeah. And the woman went right back to bed. And I remember thinking, geez, everything I'm learning in nursing school is wrong. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> and that's still the case, unfortunately. I've always said you learn how to be a nurse when you get out of school and you get that real world experience because I've seen... Caregivers get up in their patient's face and their loved one's face and be like, "Don't you remember? I just told you." Getting them to understand, no, she doesn't remember, and she's not going to. You really do have to insert yourself into their reality. Sometimes I had a patient when I worked at a long-term care facility as an LPN, and she, the only thing that would calm her was baby dolls. And I would sit her out beside me when I would be doing my charting at night, and she would rock her baby and. I would, she would even nurse the baby doll a couple of times. That was what soothed her. And you had to play along. Let me get your baby a blanket. Have you tried burping the baby? Things like that. You really do have to insert yourself in their reality because they can't insert themselves into yours. They don't have those, that ability anymore.
0: The neurons are going offline. Right. And, and one of the things I thought was really cool is I liked how you started this interview with the neuroanatomy. You didn't go deep into it, but I think that's, really important because I hear people who call themselves dementia educators and I'm trying not to, if if you're listening to this podcast, my eyes (sighs) are rolling to the back of my head because I have people who are self-proclaimed dementia experts and they don't know diddly doodle about anatomy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying you have to go dive deep and know where the insular capsule is, but you but those of us who are truly legit experts and Lindsay, you may not think you're an expert, but you are. And <laughs> same you. with the other, you, you are, the, the other members of our, our practice are all like pretty freaking awesome. And it's because they do understand and we continue to learn neuroanatomy To our right. listeners, we will sit and look at MRIs in the clinic and we, we play a game called, what did the radiologist say? And what are we looking at? Because. <laughs> Yeah. Many a time we'll get a report and the report will say normal aging. And the running joke in the clinic is if I can see it, we call it, you know, the Helen Keller diagnosis. Because (laughs) if I can see a change on an MRI, I'm not as skilled as as Lindsay and my other colleagues. But if I can see something on the MRI, it's pretty damn obvious. (laughs) And uh, I mean, and it really helps. And I know you do it too. I will bring the MRI up in the room. And I will point to different places in the picture and say, there's where your shrinkage is. And that's why you're seeing X behavior. Right. And now what we do about it. So I think that's a really important trait that distinguishes what we do and the services we provide with a lot of other alleged experts. We know the brain and we continue to learn about it. And it all starts with. So you're listening to episode 30 my interview with Lindsay Robbins, and I'm going to pause for a second. We're going to take a real quick break. And when we come back, Lindsay will talk more about shadowing and best practices. So don't go away.
1: I think I might, I'm an expert in caregiving behaviors and things like that, but there's still parts of neuroanatomy that if you, I feel like a novice compared to the physicians in our practice, obviously. It's a constant learning thing. And I do agree that showing the caregivers the anatomy scan and explaining to them why they're doing this sometimes just helps them grasp it. And I think one of the most common questions I get from caregivers is, do we need another MRI so we can see if the brain is shrinking? Do we need to see if things have gotten worse? And just being able to explain to them, we don't need another MRI to see progression. We can see that in their day-to-day decline in their function and the increase in behaviors. A lot of times just explaining that to them, it just makes so much sense. It's like they can finally understand why things are happening. So being able to explain the anatomic reason behind it, in addition to what we can do about it, just helps them cope and just helps them understand what's happening.
0: Any thing you want to conclude or any last points you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I guess just the
1: only other thing that I can, I could talk about shadowing all day for the sake of (laughs) entertainment, I will uh, just keep it minimum. There are medicines that can help. I I know that it sounds like a really minute intervention just to distract patients. And it it may get to the point where distraction methods do not work. I have seen patients become so agitated that no amount of distraction is going to be helpful. So don't lose hope. If you're a caregiver dealing with this right now, talk to your provider about medication options. There are medications such as Citalopram, Lexapro, things like that, that are serotonin agents that can help reduce some of the anxiety associated with the shadowing behaviors. If they're very severe, we can, we, we do sometimes prescribe stronger medications such as mood stabilizers, antipsychotics, sometimes benzodiazepines can help too. But we try to use those as a last resort just because of the side effects of those medications. Obviously, if somebody's following you around the house and you're giving them a medicine that sedates them, there's the increased fall risk. So We do have to be really cautious with that. But I I just encourage caregivers that are dealing with this just to try to, like I said, try to control your own emotions, try to stay calm because if you're increasingly anxious, the the loved one with dementia is going to be increasingly anxious as well. But don't lose hope. One there was a a neurologist who I, I won't say his name, but he's retired now, who I started out at our clinic with. And the one thing that he's he said on one of my very first visits with him that really resonated with me is that there's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days but on those bad days you just need to take a deep breath and be patient because another good day is coming they're not all going to be bad
0: and that just really that's resonated a with me. really important message because i i really think sometimes when we're having a really crappy day we think okay this is the way it's going to be exactly but this- But this disease is truly a roller coaster where Mm -hmm. you may have a really crummy day and then be rewarded with some really good...
1: There's always going to be fluctuations. There's always going to be good days and bad days. If there's a day that just seems really bad, just acutely, keep in the back of your mind infections. Is there a urinary tract infection? Is is there an upper respiratory infection? Could that be contributing to the increase in behaviors? There's always something that could be going on because I think a lot of times... People forget that patients with dementia are just as at risk for other types of medical conditions as well. Infections, you know, strokes, heart attacks, things like that. So always be looking out for other comorbidities that could be complicating the underlying disease
0: process. Now, those are really good points. And I like the fact that you brought up medications. I will, as I say in the podcast, this does not substitute for medical advice or care. It's education. Oftentimes, we give families the script, or at least the questions to ask, because a lot of families are surprised that their primary care provider knows jack shit about dementia. (laughs) And we're not surprised because we deal with it all the time. But yeah, there's a lot of providers who, even other neurologists who say, who perhaps, because I tell families this, well, we went to a neurologist in, you know, Tupelo, Mississippi. Awesome. And you have your generic neurologist who really don't know a whole lot about neurodegenerative diseases, which is what dementia is are, they may specialize in seizures, or headaches. So families tend to think a neurologist is a neurologist, Mm -hmm. just somebody walks in there, I get somebody off the street to take care of a plumbing issue. There's levels of plumbers, there's levels Mm -hmm. of electricians, and, and maybe I got the individual who just finished Votech last week versus the master plumber who teaches at the Votech So yeah, and it's really good for families to start the conversation about the behavior is really escalating. Do they have a bladder infection? Do they have something going on? If not, can I get a medication? Because one of the things a lot of even clinicians don't grasp is the neurons are dying off and neurons make serotonin they make dopamine they they make all the the brain juice all the brain chemicals and when the neurons break down the chemicals are less and less so adding something that would increase serotonin would increase acetylcholine, can often take the edge off the behavior. And like I said,
1: a lot of people don't want to resort to medications, but there are some times that they are necessary. And if it helps the patient have a better quality of life and helps the caregiver have a better quality of life, then so be it. But there's also other non-pharmaceutical interventions out there.
0: Absolutely. Lindsay Robbins, I am so happy that you agreed to be my second podcast guest. I guess (laughs) I'll be going through the clinical practice and everybody gets (laughs) your day, but uh, but I didn't want anybody to feel like they had to. I just, when you provided your talk on shadowing, it was so awesome. I knew you could do a way better job than me. So I I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. And I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and expertise with my listeners, because together we're going to make dementia our bitch.
1: Absolutely. And I'm honored to have been a part of it. And thank you so much for having me. I hope it helped.
0: I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.